When it comes to air quality, the bad news is that wildfires and air pollution have really degraded the quality of our air. But the good news is that we're all realizing that the quality of our air, and particularly the quality of our indoor air, is really darn important. I'm so excited to tell you about Puro Air because in 30 minutes, this device will remove allergens, dust, smoke, and gases from your room. It uses a stronger type of filter called a HEPA-14, and it filters pollutants at a microscopic level. I keep my Puro Air running upstairs where the bedrooms are all night. I love that it's quiet. Cleaner air just hits different, doesn't it? Check out everything Puro Air has to offer at getpuroair.com. That's G-E-T-P-U-R-O-A-I-R.com. One more time for the people in the back, getpuroair.com. Well, hello there, listeners, and welcome back. My name is Stephanie Safarian, and you're listening to episode 380 of Sustainable Minimalists, a show about intentional and eco-friendly minimalist living. It is Climate Optimism Week on the podcast. Oh my goodness, I'm so excited. Welcome. This week we're talking about good news, and there is indeed some good news to talk about, even amidst the barrage of troubling climate headlines. So on Climate Optimism Week, today I'm bringing you an interview. We'll get to that in a minute. And then on Thursday, we are talking about carbon capture. If the problem is too much carbon in the atmosphere, what new innovations and technology are out and about that seek to capture the carbon that's floating around the atmosphere and contributing to global warming and in turn, climate change. And now back to today's show, which kicks off Climate Optimism Week. Today, I'm speaking with Anne-Therese Gennari. She has a new book out called The Climate Optimist Handbook, which is a motivational self-help book for anyone and everyone who's worried about climate change and wants to learn how they can become more resilient and motivated and, of course, optimistic when it comes to confronting the climate crisis. And Therese, I'm so excited to have you on the show, a climate optimist. This may be a first. What made you decide to write this book? I'm curious. Oh, it's such a great question. I was actually writing the book for almost a decade, and it did not start out as a climate book. It was more so a self-help handbook for people in general who wanted to get better at embracing change and up-leveling their lives. And as I continued to write it, I got more and more involved in climate work and realized that so much of how I wanted to help people actually applied to how I wanted to also help the world. So I started to just notice some connections between how we can heal people and how that will lead to healing the world. So it became a book about helping people heal. And that's what I ultimately wanted the book to be. Well, I read in your book, I learned a lot about you. I learned that you used to be an angry activist, and those are your words, (laughs) not mine. Talk to me about your transition from angry activist to climate optimist. Yes, and I choose the term angry activist because that's literally the best way to describe me. I was the person who would show up to a party and start pointing fingers and tell people how terrible they were. Um, like no filters. It was awful. And it's a really great way to live if you want to lose friends. I'll say that much. But it's also very frustrating because A, no one wants to listen to you because you're a party pooper, basically. And no one likes to be shamed. 
And I wasn't just shaming people around me. I was shaming myself too. And I actually found it really hard just to live life because if you start to really put your awareness classes on, you realize that everything you do is contributing to some sort of destruction or climate change in a way, because that's how society is built up. So it took honestly a sort of spiritual awakening for me that was forced upon me almost. It was a night at my parents' house. I had had this very, again, frustrating conversation with my brother. And I felt like the world was on my shoulders and all the responsibility was on me. And I was frustrated and desperate, quite frankly. And I just ended up on the floor crying. But what, what was so beautiful about this moment was that afterwards, which I'm assuming was about 10 to 15 minutes of crying, I entered this state of incredible lightness. I felt light. I felt free in a way that I hadn't felt in a long time. And what I realized was that I had just let go of all this built up anger and grief and sadness that I had been bottling up inside me for, for years. And this message came through. I'm here to speak up for those who can't and fight for mother nature and animals and, and people in need. And that really is my calling and it's always has been something I'm super passionate about, but how I was going about it wasn't working. That was the turning point for me when I realized that you got to do this in a different way. And I started to explore what living life differently could look like. And what if I approached it with light and love and understanding instead of shaming and blaming and hate? A lot of that story, your story there resonates with me. The voice inside telling you a different way, like that all means something to me on a personal level. However, I'm assuming that there are listeners who are listening to our conversation right now and they're saying to themselves, what on earth is Anne Therese and Stephanie talking about? <laughs> and so for them, I have some questions. I mean, just playing the devil's advocate here, to be a climate optimist would mean to deny climate science, essentially. The overwhelming empirical research that is thrown at us says that there's actually not much to be all that optimistic about. So talk to me about that. How can we be climate optimists when the prognosis for humanity is so dire? Thank you for asking the ultimate question. And it serves to point out what, at least in my world, an optimist is. And I think it serves to differentiate it from toxic positivity, which is ultimately this idea that if we just think happy thoughts and believe things are going to get better, it will. And that is not the truth. And I tried that route in my early days as a climate optimist before I figured it out. And I think my climate anxiety was actually at its, its highest during those years because I was trying to put a blind eye to the reality of things. And I was trying not to pay attention to the science and to what I actually deep inside knew and to just continue to show up and look out for the positive news because they also exist. Like there are some good optimistic climate news out there, but they're being drowned by all the negative. And the reality is that right now we are not facing a very beautiful future. I'm going to be frank and say that. And for me to be an optimist takes work and it's not about wishful thinking. It's actually about finding a sweet spot and landing in what I call grounded awareness, but then choosing to step into empowered action and to do so from a place of optimism, meaning we have to deep inside somehow believe that we can make a difference, that we can turn the course. Um, because 
if not, why would we even try? Why would we even show up in the first place? And in the book, I talk a lot about the science of optimism. And if you look at neuroscience, it describes why we can be optimistic in the first place, which is a pretty incredible thing because most species can't even think about the future. And we can not just think about the future, but we can have an expectation of that future. So there's a reason to why we can be optimistic. And to put it quite simply, it's because we have to believe that it's possible to even try. So for me, it's not about sitting on the sidelines, crossing our arms, hoping for things to turn out and saying, well, it's not going to be great because that's not the way forward. And the book really is about navigating that journey of how do we stay aware, but how do we also grow emotional resilience so that we can stay aware and not get overwhelmed? Because when we get overwhelmed and give in to anxiety and despair, we actually start to do less. Hmm. As you're talking there, I'm thinking about the parallels that may be present between the climate fight and the gun control fight that many of us are fighting here in the United States, right? Like, I think what you're saying is that when we are flooded with negative information, or in the case of gun control issues, we are flooded with stories of gun violence, uh, mass gun violence, it can be human nature, perhaps, to just become desensitized to it. And when we're desensitized, we actually do nothing. We throw our hands up and don't act. Or we become fearful and act out of a place of self-preservation instead of, again, pro-action. Is that what you're saying there? Yes. So if you think about how the brain reacts to certain kinds of information and especially threats, we are fairly aware of the three main categories of reacting to a threat, which is fight, flight, or freeze. And so what you touched upon is when things get overwhelming, how do we respond? And many times when we get overwhelmed, we actually do nothing. And that stems from way back in the day when we would potentially approach a dangerous tiger, let's say, out in the wild. And you have three options to survive, fight, flight, or freeze. And if you try to fight the tiger, you're most likely not going to win. <laughs> if you try to outrun it, it's going to be faster than you. So the only chance you actually have of survival in that moment is to stay completely still and just pray that this tiger hasn't seen you. So basically, how our brain reacts to something that's very fearful and overwhelming is to, in the moment, freeze. We do nothing and we get paralyzed. I read a book uh, by Perez Storkness. It's called What We Think About When We Try Not to Think About Global Warming. And he mentioned that studies have actually shown that the more people care or learn about climate change, the less they tend to do. And he also calls this the snooze button effect, where, you know, the first time you hear a threat, it's very alarming. May it be a pandemic or climate change, and you get all like worked up and say, oh my God, we got to do something about this. And then you hear about it again, and then again, and again. And for each time you hear it, the alarm gets less and less powerful in a way. And it's similar to hearing your alarm next to the bed. And for each time you press the button, you can almost snooze through it towards the end. And so that's what's happening about climate change. And how we always hear about it is from these very doomy, gloomy, overwhelmingly scary approaches that actually prohibits action versus propels it. Hmm. All right, Anne Therese, you're convincing me. I feel myself turning. <laughs> However, there were two statements in your book that I really need to 
dig down deep with you in, <laughs> if that's okay with you. Are you on board? Yes. Okay. Yes. So let me just preface this for listeners and say that I was reading your book and I agreed with 92% of it. However, this 8%, I, you know, said out loud, what is she saying here? I can't believe this. And so the first was, and I love that we can have this very, you know, (laughs) frills-free conversation, and thank you for that. But the first was, you said, and I quote, we need to tone down the urgency on climate change. I need you to explain the statement for me because... I'm going to be completely honest and completely rude and say that this sounds like an unbelievably irresponsible statement to suggest that we have the time, freedom, privilege to move without urgency. Talk to me about this. I love that you call this out. And um, (laughs) quite obviously, I chose the title because I wanted it to be provocative. (laughs) So uh, I'm really glad that it had that effect. And I say this as someone who has been in a a state of urgency almost my entire life. Like there have been multiple times where my mom or my husband have been like, you got to just like take a day, like slow it down, chill. And the only reason I know this now and I have gained a different kind of understanding for it is because of this incredible mentor that stepped into my life. Um, about a year ago, and he was the one who said it to me to my face. He said, you need to slow down, like tone down the urgency. What I share in the book that I also want to share here is that he explained it to me this way. He said, what if you're a surgeon and someone you care deeply about comes into the operating table and you have a chance to save this person's life? And obviously you want to do everything you can. Would you do what you always do? Prepare the nurses, set up the room, clean all the tools to make sure that you do your best job. Or would you rush this person to the table and just get right in? And to me then, it was clear to me that I I see what he was saying. And I say tone down the urgency. And I think I do mention this in in the chapter too, that obviously we have to start sprinting when it comes to taking climate action. But in this sprint, we can still tone down our sense of urgency in a way where we can slow down enough to see the bigger picture. Because I think when we're constantly acting from a place of urgency, what happens in our brain is that we act from a place of fear or anger. And then again, to go back to survival, what happens is that we create a tunnel vision and we can only see the thing that we're supposed to get away from, whatever is threatening us. And it's really hard to think outside the box. And when it comes to climate solutions and how to navigate our way through this crisis, we actually have to rethink everything and build upon a new world. And that's not a small task. And I think if we don't tone down the urgency, we actually run the risk of just creating more problems down the line because we act from the same kind of thinking that created this world. Sometimes we have to create the space enough to think differently. And that's what I mean about toning down the urgency. It's not on the movement itself, but it's for us to take a breather, to tap into that bigger knowing in a way. Yes, that resonates with me for sure. I am a person who acts first and thinks later. And I think what I hear you saying is that when we are under the gun or when we're acting with urgency propelling us, we may not make decisions or changes at household levels, at national levels, at you know worldwide levels 
that are truly the best course, right? Because we have a fire under us. And so I think what you're saying here is we need to slow down so that we are certain that whatever we're doing, whatever changes we're making are actually the best course of action. Yes, and I'll give you a very concrete example. Let's say we just decided we're gonna electrify the whole world and we're gonna do so by putting up solar panels. And then we need to find room for solar panels. And someone says, let's go cut down this forest so we can make room for solar panels. But then you erase all this biodiversity and you interrupt more ecosystem. And so in the long run, actually, it may not be the greatest thing. And so maybe we have to think about what are other ways that we can provide solar energy that does not include cutting down forest. Um, That might be a very (laughs) black and white example, but things like that is already happening. So if we look at a very short-sighted or act from a place of, we need to do this now. If we only provide solar energy, we can solve this problem. Then I think we're missing the bigger picture. I love all of that. And you have effectively convinced me, Anne-Therese, that we do indeed need to tone down the urgency on climate change. We're going to take a break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about capitalism because you have some things to say in your book and I disagree with them. (laughs) So we're going to get there after a quick sponsor break. So many of us have chaotic closets that are crammed full of clothing items and yet somehow we still have nothing to wear. Well, upgrading to high quality and affordable pieces from Quince when you need them is a game changer. They offer organic cotton sweaters and washable silk tops. My 100% Mongolian cashmere sweaters are my go-to. Not only are they affordable, but the quality is top-notch They wear better than the cashmere sweaters that are double their price. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com slash sustainable podcast for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash sustainable podcast to get free shipping and 365 day returns. One more time, quince.com slash sustainable podcast. Hello, Sustainable Minimalist listeners. Are you committed to living a greener and simpler life? Well, meet Home Threads, your ally in more sustainable and minimalist home decor. As the total destination for decor and furniture, Home Threads helps you define your minimalist lifestyle while respecting the planet. Discover their exclusive Haven collection. They use many sustainable materials without compromising on style. And here's the best part. Home Threads always has the best value. It was time. After nine years of living in our home, it was time to replace our outdoor furniture. And my husband and I, we went to Home Threads. We have a Home Threads patio umbrella and a new bench. And oh my goodness, we are so in love. Create a home that reflects your commitment to the environment. Visit homethreads.com slash sustainable and get a code for 15% off your first order. Homethreads.com slash sustainable. Love where you live. And we're back. Today I'm speaking with Anne-Therese Janeri. She is the author of the new book out now, The Climate Optimist Handbook. Anne-Therese You've convinced me, okay, that we do need to tone down the urgency with regard to climate change. We need to think first and then act, not act and then think later. But now we need to talk about 
capitalism. Because <laughs> oh, holy moly, we are on two different ends of the spectrum with regard to capitalism. You say capitalism is our ally. I say capitalism is the reason for all our woes. How on earth is capitalism our ally? And how can we just ignore the fact, the sad reality that capitalism is a major player, if not the major player in our collective overconsumption habits, which by the way, drive our carbon emissions through the roof. I will not challenge you on that part because it's true. Capitalism today is built upon this linear process where we want to extract, create as much as possible, sell that for as little as possible, make it go bad as fast as possible so people will buy something new. Like that's basically the model of today's consumerism and capitalism. It's also built upon making rich people richer and to grow as much as possible. So we have a very linear idea of growth. And again, I will actually point back to Paris Storkness because he says so many brilliant things. But one thing he said to me once was that if you think about a forest, a forest is always growing always creating new life. But that doesn't mean that the trees continue to get taller. They reach sort of like a height, right? And I always think about skyscrapers in New York City because I don't know how, but somehow they continue to get taller and I just don't know how they do it. But that's a really good picture to paint when you think about capitalism because we can mimic nature when it comes to growth. There's circular growth where things can continue to get put back into the system and back in the loop that doesn't continue to destroy and pollute basically. And so I know that we're far away from that right now, but I will say that companies are starting to take action and circularity is becoming a new trendy norm. Um, I think there's a lot more to do in that space, but if we can really figure out a system where whatever is already taken from the earth gets repurposed and repurposed and repurposed. And if that is, you know, dissembled and put together again in a way that's not harmful, if we can really figure that out, Capitalism does not have to be this culprit for destruction, but actually a powerful tool to enable this shift to take place. Because the, the change that we need in society, and we have to also be realistic, we are what, 8 billion people on this planet, and we have to eat and heat our houses and have medical care. And I mean, I just had a baby, so I'm very aware of the waste that goes into the medical system today. But they, these services exist and we can survive and thrive because of them. So if we were to remove all that, like how are we going to even live? So in, in many ways, we rely on the cap capitalistic system to even exist today. So that's why I said every time something is powerful, we can use that power for something bad or something good. And what if we were to, again, start to really question how we do business, how we value businesses? So another example is right now, we're operating a lot from shareholder value, which means that a business... A business purpose, even by law, is to make shareholders richer. So that's why they have to report quarterly or um, yearly that they're making more money for their shareholders. So sometimes that prohibits a company to actually make substantial changes because it will you know, indicate they have to make an investment um, in the short run that might lead to bigger profits in the long run. But if they can't show that in a quarterly earnings report, they may not be able to make those moves. But instead, companies are moving towards stakeholder economy, which means they have to take all stakeholders' um, best interest at heart. So when they make decisions, it might be about the environment, which the business is operating in. It's the business employees and their families and their futures. And so just, again, navigating away from this idea of 
let's make rich people richer to how can we create a system where everyone can thrive, where we can continue to circulate things forever. Am I, am I turning you a little bit? <laughs> I mean, you're turning me slightly. I think I need you to promise right here and now, Anne Therese, that you're going to come on again and we're going to just talk only about capitalism because I want to talk to you about your book. And yes. so you have to come back again yes. and we're going to talk about, <laughs> all right, you promise? Pinky promise virtually? Okay. <laughs> all right. So, so we'll, we'll table that there because I do want to talk about your book, but stay tuned listeners. We're going to go down that rabbit hole at a later date. All right. So everything else in your book, I'm on board with. And I really want to highlight some of your main points that I freaking loved. And I screamed out loud and I said, yes. (laughs) The first is you say that we should not necessarily seek to only minimize our negative footprint, but we should also be seeking to maximize our positive one. Tell me all about it. Oh, this is when it really shifted for me because I think, and listen, this is, this is manufactured by old companies, really. You know, this whole idea that we have a carbon footprint and we have to know about it and we have to recycle the right way. It's so that companies can continue doing what they would do and for us to get overwhelmed and very frustrated and point fingers at one another. So I'll start there. But, you know, we have this sense that it's our fault that climate change is real and we are polluting the earth, which we are. Um, but again, the system is built that way. And if we live with this idea that if we can only minimize our footprint, if we can only make ourselves felt less on this earth, then maybe we can figure this out. But then you think of yourself as something bad, right? It's very shame induced. And it's really hard to take action from that feeling of shame because it's easier to just corner it for a later day and go watch Netflix. So for me, it was about shifting from this sense of responsibility and guilt into opportunity. How can I, instead of just minimizing my negative footprint, actually think of ways to maximize my positive one? Um, And this goes for all areas of life. You know, how can you walk into a room and make other people feel good about themselves? How can you show up with intention and love in conversations with people you talk to? But that also with climate change, what are things that we can do that actually leaves a positive footprint? And it might seem, especially for people who are new to this field, that that's impossible, but an example I love to give is soil. Right now, we have depleted the soil so much where we're looking at another 60 or 70 harvests left, um, meaning and by the end of this decade, we may not be able to grow food in our soils anymore because that's how much we have depleted the soils. However, if we start to work with the soil by composting our foods and making that fertilizer that we can put back into the soils, helping them enrich again, working with agriculture that's permaculture and crop rotation, And if we work with the soil and with Mother Nature, we can actually help soil bounce back. And not only do we make more nutrient-dense foods from doing this, but also the soil is better to hold water, so less flooding, um, better harvests. And also rich, healthy soil actually sequesters carbon. So it's also an ally in fighting climate change. And I think that's just a really good reminder of by in your home, if you choose to compost your food, you're actually participating in the positive change and you're actually adding to your positive footprint. So that's just one great example, but there are many more. So for me, it was really about that just tiny shift of, it's not my fault. I'm here to matter. I'm here to make a difference. And if I can act from a place of maximizing myself in a positive way, then I can actually start to make substantial change. I absolutely love all of that. I'm thinking about how 
you know, so many conversations, to be frank, on this podcast are about calculating your carbon footprint and seeking to slowly over time reduce that number. But that lens leaves out the fact (laughs) that by doing some eco-friendly actions, let's say, we're actually putting good back into the world. It's not about reducing that bottom line number. It's actually about putting good back into the world. And that's just a very simple mindset shift that we can all enact without really any heavy lifting. So I love that. Another thing I loved that you wrote was the idea of re-truthing. Re-truthing. Talk to me about it. Really, re-truthing means that we look at our personal own truths. So they can differ, like yours differ from mine. But basically what a truth is, is something you live by now that you may not even be aware of. So we have collected this quote-unquote data since we were born, you know, from society, from our moms, from friends, from school. And we have created a subconscious mind that enables us to function in our everyday lives. If you believe in epigenetics, it's a science that says that we act from our subconscious mind 97% of the day. So majority of our day, we're not even paying attention to what we're doing or the choices we're making. It's just like automation and habits. And that's great. It makes us live life in a very smooth way. However, it's easy to get stuck in old ruts and sometimes maybe not even pay attention to the things that we're doing. So for me, retruthing is just a simple exercise of paying more attention and start asking ourselves those questions of like, why am I buying this brand? Or why am I saying this? Or why am I reacting this way? Why do I drive this way to work? Why do I drive at all, but I could be biking? Just starting to really, you know, take a step back and imagine yourself sitting in a theater and you're looking at yourself on stage, like, what is she doing? Uh, And it's kind of awkward because you start to really like notice things that you do and sometimes you don't like them, but you get to know yourself in a different way. And then once you do notice something that you may not like anymore, you're like, I don't want to be this person. Like, why do I say that? You know, why do I react this way? Or why do I buy these things? You can start to retruth that by simply writing down the old truth. Like, this is what I believe and this is why I do this. And then this is what I want to believe moving forward. Now, reprogramming ourselves this way, it's not like a one and done thing. (laughs) Again, it's habits. But if we write the new truth down somewhere where we see it often, that can actually start to have significant change in your life and impact in your life. An example I like to give is my whole idea of change. I used to resist change so much. I hated when things were not what they were supposed to be. And I realized that I thought the change was scary. It meant that I didn't know what was going on. I didn't have control of the outcome. And I reframed it and said to myself, change is exciting. You know, I never know what's around the corner. What if I'm more open-minded? I never know what could come my way. And just by rewriting this truth for myself, life opened up like so much. I can't even explain to you how much. So it's an exercise of getting to know yourself better and finding ways to live your life in a different way and more attuned to who you want to be today. So, Anne-Therese, you probably don't know this, but... I aired an episode about exactly, exactly to the T what you're talking about right now, which is asking yourself, you know, some hard questions. Why am I doing this? Why am I thinking this? And flipping what we've commonly held as true on its head. And so again, it's about like turning the light switch on and asking ourselves and getting intentional, right? This is an intentional living podcast. Like, why am I doing this? 
or why am I thinking this? Or is this serving me? Is this serving the planet? And so, Anne Therese, before we say goodbye, there was one statement in your book that I wrote down on a piece of paper and I stuck it on my desk. And by the way, my desk is my dining room table, so <laughs> it's not all that fancy. But you wrote, and again, I quote, you can't carry the world on your shoulders, but you can carry it in your heart. That really spoke to me. And instead of me telling you what I think you meant, why don't you tell us what you meant? Well, first of all, whatever it means to you is what it means to you. So I just want listeners to know that too. But my mom, when I was younger, would say this over and over and over again, honey, you can't carry the world on your shoulders. And I really did feel like I was carrying the world on my shoulders because no one that I know of or knew of cared as much as I did. So I thought it was up to me to, to save the world, quote unquote. And it's really hard, damn hard to live that way. Um, and what dawned upon me when I was writing this book was that we may not be able to carry the world on our shoulders, but when we find ways to just immerse ourselves deeper and exist more here in all of it and accept things for what they are and see the ugly and see the pretty and see all of it and see ourselves for all that we are, we actually grow our hearts bigger. And anyone who's gone through any hardship knows this, that you in the moment thought you couldn't do it, but you made it through to the other side. And looking back, not only do you feel stronger now, but you have more compassion and more understanding and you have a bigger capacity of love, basically. And so for me, the heart is such an incredible muscle because it can take heavy shit. It can take the hard stuff and it's hard to go through it, but we do grow from it. And the heart will not grow tired. It actually will only grow stronger. So for me, that's really what the quote is about. It's about understanding that when we start to look at the world, not again from carrying it on our shoulders, but from having place for it in our hearts, that's when we are not only looking in from the outside, but are being part of it and understanding our place in it. Um, but I would love to hear what the quote means for you. Well, it means all of that, but it, bringing this back around to where we started this conversation, you know, you mentioned you were an angry activist and you lost a lot of friends. Full disclosure, me too. <laughs> I think it's because the people we were talking to didn't carry the climate fight in their heart. Like they didn't understand it the way we do. And so instead of carrying the world on our shoulders, let's carry it in our heart and let's lead with that compassion and empathy, not just for the planet, but also for whomever we're talking to, who may not be at the same level of understanding or urgency or concern that we're at. That's what it meant right. to me. I love that. And if I may, I'm just going to plug another quote that I love. And it goes back to what you mentioned earlier, like how do we turn the light, the switch on and let, light up the room? And for me, when we think about it in that way of carrying it and acting from our hearts, when we approach other people and it's, it, you're so on point, that's the biggest battle really. It's like not understanding that people are in different places and having yet understood what you're seeing. So clearly there's a quote I'm getting to, which goes, a candle loses nothing from lightning another candle. And I think that's so beautiful because really when it's dark in a room, what we really want to do is start lighting it up so we can see the dusty corners and clean up. And so if we come at someone 
with anger and shame and blame, it's not going to help spark any light. The opposite will happen and they will probably walk out the door even. Um, it's a very metaphorical way of saying when we come at someone with, with understanding and love and intention and invite them into the conversation from a whole different place, we actually you know, run a chance of lighting that candle too and helping them see from themselves what you see. You can't force someone to see, but you can help them see it. And that's not as easier said than done, right? It can be really tricky, especially in climate conversations. But I think, again, if we remember that we can carry the world in our hearts and if we act from that place, I think a lot more can be done than we have been able to do so far. Hmm. Leading from love and not frustration, anger, blame, et cetera. That's the bottom line that I took from your book. And again, easier said than done. Easier said than done. That's why it's a handbook. <laughs> well, Anne Therese, tell us about your work, where we can find you, where we can find your book. Give us all yes. of it. I, I love talking to people like yourself and connecting. And currently I run workshops for companies, actually. So helping companies shift their internal culture and activate the people within it. And I also love talking to students. And I, lo- I do a lot of workshops and speaking at schools. So if anyone is interested, please reach out to me. And you find me at theclimateoptimist.com. It's my website. And Therese Janeri, my name is my Instagram. And please reach out. Well, Anne Therese, I loved every minute of our conversation. I thank you so much for your time. And I look forward to gleaning your optimism because frankly, I need it. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure. And thank you for putting me on the hotspot. <laughs> I love it. Listeners, that's a wrap. Show notes are at mamaminimalist.com forward slash 380. And before we say goodbye today, I do have an eco tip that comes from listener Taylor. And this eco tip is for the moms and the dads too, but the parents listening, parents with young children. Taylor says that she found the brand UpChoose when her child was about four months old. She's loved her experience. UpChoose is an organic baby clothing subscription company, and she loves it because it keeps her child in organic cotton from quality brands, and and by the way, a lot are GOT certified. She says that as a minimal-ish minimalist, and those are Taylor's words, I love it by the way, Taylor loves that she gets to send these clothes back once they grow out of them, and then they move on to another family. UpChoose has helped her avoid clothing waste, it has saved her money, and it has kept her from the mom guilt that comes with hoarding all the baby clothes. So thank you so much, Taylor. Love it. I've linked to UpChoose in the show notes. Listeners, I will see you on Thursday. Stay tuned for more of Climate Optimism Week. On Thursday, we are discussing carbon capture, and it is going to be so much fun. I promise. I'll see you then and take care. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.